Welcome to Coffee and Geography, where my guests and I geek out about the world and everything on it, discovering that we are all geographers in some way, shape or form. I'm your host, Kit, and my pronouns are they, them or she, her. So settle down with a brew, hit that subscribe or follow button and enjoy the listen. Hello everybody, so um, I've got up this morning and I was a bit cranky, this is all relevant, um, got the kids out of bed, into school, finished the dregs of their breakfast and while doing that, this person has just finished up their entire day because they're on the other side of the world, down under and I welcome to the podcast, Professor John Cook, how are you doing John? G'day kid, great to talk to you. Ah oh, yes, there it is, the g'day. Well, you mentioned you mentioned being on the other side of the world, so it was, yeah. it was a gratuitous Aussie um, interjection there. John, I have to get the elephant in the room out of the way first. Are you a cricket fan? Huge cricket fan. I've been, oh. I've been monitoring the ashes. <laughs> Although I was watching the highlights from day one of the second test uh, this morning when I, w- I wake up, catch up on the cricket highlights. Was actually yeah. disturbed to see Besto carrying a protester off the field. Like, do they not have do they not have security to do that kind of thing? But <laughs> anyway, yeah, folks, if you're not interested into cricket, right? <laughs> I, I understand if you skip the next like two minutes or something like that, right? You know, but I am definitely like that song. I don't like cricket. I love it, right? Well, especially yeah. when the Ashes and stuff like that are on, um, and like England just threw away the first test. I felt. Australia have made a fantastic start to the second one, even being put in the bat. But the talking point, which is relevant for John being here, because I'll introduce John, is that um, there was a Just Stop Oil protester who uh, ran onto the field yesterday and was carried, carried off by wicketkeeper Johnny Bairstow. So uh, he had his mitts full with, uh, with an orange protester. But um, And that is because, folks, that's relevant because John is a scientist who researches how to fight fake news. And before becoming a scientist, he was a cartoonist. Um, and so now he now combines his science and art in the cranky uncle game. You definitely need to check that out. We'll talk about that a bit later. Using humor, cartoons, critical thinking, and build, and games to build resilience against misinformation. And his passion is climate change, working to reduce the impact of climate change on the world and people. So that is why yesterday your two of your worlds collided, cricket and the climate change protest. Yeah, so what so um is there's too much focus on the protester? with these things so we've had it in the snooker we've had it in the cricket we've had it in the rugby so what do you think about all this then john as well as art galleries as well yes of course whole um you know just a sequence of of protesters throwing various substances under under very famous paintings uh yeah i have mixed feelings about it because on the one hand i i share their concerns about climate change and feel like we urgently, urgently need to act on climate change. But at the same time, how we do that is important. If the point Mm. of protest is to raise awareness and try to get the public on board, uh, you're trying to bring them with you, doing alienating acts uh, can be counterproductive. So, yeah, fully agree with the sentiment, but I, I... Sometimes the actions concern me if they um, alienate the public more than bring them on board in becoming concerned about climate change. 
it's such a tricky balance for these folks, isn't it? I mean, like Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion. Um, and we know that those folks get a lot of bad press for what they do. Um, and what you don't see on the fringes is a lot of people. I've got I have quite a few friends, for example, who are in uh, Extinction Rebellion in the East, which is here in the East of England. And and the, the majority of them do a lot of work behind the scenes, like information, education, pub, you know, um, not so much direct action. So the direct action really, folks, is what you see is really just the tip of the iceberg of all the activism that's going on underneath. And so I, I can see where you're coming from, John, because I, if you, I think to myself, you know, the direct action is, you know, the argument is they would say is you have, um, you know, we had massive floods with the massive downpours here in the UK a week ago, just after the breaking of the heat and it caused flooding and people couldn't get around on the M25, you know, so the M25 is bad enough as it is, you know, but have it flooding and stuff like that. So people couldn't, you know, had, couldn't drive. They're saying, well, look, this is the dis potential disruption of climate change, you know, and you're having a go at a few protests on the road. So that's their argument. The other side of the argument, of course, is that all these people are doing this work in the background feel, well, is our message being undermined by the, by the actual direct action activists so it's a tricky balance it's such a tricky balance but of course we're in a climate emergency what do we do yeah yeah i don't think there's any one answer and maybe that's the point is mm. that every every one of us are individuals we all have our own backgrounds talents skills and we should all bring what we've got to the table and use that uh, and if we combine all our different passions and skills and backgrounds in unique ways, then that can make a unique impact. For example, yeah. if you happen to be a cartoonist and a cognitive scientist and a, um, and uh, a, a do critical thinking research, combining all those different unique things in a, in a special way can make an impact in a way that, that uses humor as well. Humor is another way to engage and bring people along. So, but, but that's just one example. I think all of us have a unique contribution to make and we should all be thinking about what am I passionate about, what am I good at, and how can I use that to help um, stop climate change? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, people know that I talk a lot and that's one that's skill, skill I try to use. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, right, so John, um, usually what we do at the first part of the podcast is say uh, what brew usually to bring to the to the podcast so it's the end of the day for you you're winding down um so uh what brew have you got with you or what would you usually have at this time of day well at, at this time of day um might uh, have a glass of red <laughs> or a cocktail depending on if it's fr friday after if this was 24 hours from now I would probably be making myself a margarita or a mojito, perhaps <laughs> celebrate the end of the week. Um, nice, uh, but but also um, lately we're trying to restrict our drinking to the to the weekends. Just so that we're not uh, taking too many calories. <laughs> nice, yeah. So, um, I now Australians and their wine because as here in the UK we're 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 blessed with such a range of wines, South Africa, definitely Australia, stuff like that. Are you folks big on your own wine? Are you like, yeah, like we drink our own wine, like we drink our own beers, or is it a case of, no, that's that we export that stuff. We have something else. Dispel this myth for me, you know. Um, me personally, I, I enjoy Australian wine. In fact, when we were living in the US, 
um, for four years, uh, actually from 2017 to 2020, over the same four years that Trump was president. Um, one of my favourite wines at that point, probably, <laughs> maybe being living under the Trump administration probably drove me to wine, but um, was was an Australian <laughs> wine, which I'd never had before. We just we saw it on the shelf and it, it, was, it had something to do with convicts. And I forget the name of the wine now, which, which uh, your English audience would probably appreciate. But um, yeah, so yeah, th- that's not a, that that's a myth, I think, that <laughs> enjoy Australian wines. Yeah, it's because it's, of course it's wine is uh, such a big for for us anyway here in the United Kingdom. Although climate change is making it, <laughs> and I don't think there's any there are no net positives to climate change. But I've seen answers in kids' exam questions say, "But a positive of climate change is that the UK can now grow wines." I'm like, "Oh my god!" It's like really, and compared to everything else, but. Um, we're obviously a net, we're obviously an, an importer of wine, so all we ever know about wine is wine, it's a drink of other countries. So um, I find it I find I kind of find it fascinating when I speak to people in certain parts of the world where we import things from them from their culture, and of course, usually what happens is that they get westernized. So you know, the Chinese food here is not Chinese food. The Indian food here is not really Indian food. It's westernized Indian and all that kind of stuff. But with wine is wine. So um, I guess, do you know much about like? how much the climate really does influence the, the wine? Because I know nothing about it. I mean, I know about meteorology and climatology and stuff like that, but how it might affect the berry or something like that, or the grape, I have no idea. Do you have any inkling at all? I equally have no idea. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, as, as I say, folks, just because we, we, we know about climate doesn't mean necessarily we know about how wine grows in different climates. That's a completely other science. Uh, but we're very grateful to you folks who do this science with the different various <laughs> tastes of wines that we can have. Um, so you're over there in uh, Melbourne now, and um, I apologise, folks, if I do get the pronunciation this wrong. I am trying, and please do correct me. So uh, Melbourne in Australia is on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri Wurrung and the Wurrung peoples, uh, I think. The Aboriginal peoples. I think I completely butchered those terms, and I do apologise. But I do like to recognise the the um, indigenous and traditional lands that that folks are on. Um, has Melbourne been your? Is it your place? Is it is it where you were born and raised? Did you are you from another part of, the, of Australia, or another part of the world? And uh, how does Melbourne form John Cook's identity? I mean, are you Melbourne Australian through and through, Victoria through and through? Are you? Have you brought other identities from other locations with you to make the person you are today? I'm a relative newcomer. Uh, we when we came back to Australia from the US in 2021, um, it, it was to Melbourne. But prior to that, I grew up and lived most of my life in Queensland. So okay. I'm, I'm very much a tropical Queenslander passionate Queensland football fan We're right in the middle of state of origin at the moment. So I'm a bit low key obsessed with following all the, the commentary about state of origin. I don't know whether people in England are even heard of state of origin, but it's a huge deal over here. Um, so, so yeah, I'm very much a Queenslander living in Victoria. Yeah. Which of course, because Australia is effectively a continent. It's, that's a long way away. <laughs> from where you are right now so what what roughly is the distance between for folks who don't know the distance between where you are right now and up there in queensland 
a yeah, few thousand it, miles, I imagine. Yeah, it's a, what is it? It's about a two and a half hour flight from, from Melbourne to Brisbane, which is the very southeast of Queensland. Mm. Then it's another couple of hours to the north of Queensland. So it's yeah, wow. It's, it would be about a probably if I was if I was to fly to the north of Queensland, it would be about probably a four or five hour flight. Crikey, yeah, and then that's that's not too crikey. Yeah, crikey, there you go, no one. Um, you not say that down there, though, don't you? You say crikey. I thought that was our thing. I didn't realize that uh, it was a British term. Now, did you did you take it from us or did we take it from you? Yeah, that's well, someone will have to um because <laughs> I say it a lot because I've got um I've got Cockney roots because my my dad is from the East End of London, so I say crikey a lot. Yeah, I ha- I have friends in Australia keep telling me that I need to come visit, but um, I'm like. I don't know. Can I do the flight? And of course, there is, there is a non-stop flight now between London, Perth. yeah, Perth. and Perth. I mean, what's that? Twenty-two hours or something like that? It's, I, I, heard, I think I seem to recall it being twenty-one, but wow. probably the longest. It would that would be a long, long flight. Yeah, and folks, we I, I know that John and I uh, recognise the irony that we're both climate change educators and we're talking about flying here um so that's not lost on us everybody uh we we uh, we do understand that um right let's go on with climate change and because there's something i really really want to talk about first of all um john i want to thank you for all the work that you've done um not just with you know your the the climate uh, stuff but the critical thinking using your talents as an artist as well to kind of really promote and your work with the fantastic you know, helping out with a fantastic website, which is uh, Skeptical Science. So, folks, you really do need to look at that. That's such a great one-stop shop to to kind of bust myths. And and what I love about Skeptical Science is is that you can you present arguments in in three different levels. So, I think let's start there, and then we'll move into cr- cr- Cranky Uncle because that's just brilliant. And we'll play a little game with based on Cranky Uncle, right? Mm-hmm. So, Skeptical Science. Um, what, how did that come, how did you get involved in that and how did that come about and why do you think it's so important to have those different maybe levels of accessibility um, when it comes to explaining the science so skeptical science began from me having arguments with my father-in-law about climate change so, I see where this is going okay <laughs> so he uh, would throw these arguments at me and then I would go home afterwards at, after our family get together and research the different arguments and being a competitive son-in-law I, and be, also being a nerd, I started a, a database of, of each argument and then what the science said about each one, basically building a, um, an encycl- encyclopedic resource um, to have ready, you know, like to have the, the information in my head so that we organized so that when we next had our family get together, if an argument came up, I would, well, actually, the science says this. Eventually, I realized that other people also had family members who were skeptical about climate change that might also find that a useful resource. So mm-hmm. I cleaned it up, organized it, and published it as the Skeptical Science website. And for a couple of years, it was just me debunking climate myths solo. Then uh, a, it was actually a physicist from Sydney who emailed me and said, I've just read this blog post by Gavin Schmidt, he's the NASA climate scientist, yep. suggesting that uh, an effective way to communicate climate change would be to communicate at multiple levels and use the metaphor of ski slope difficulty. 
So you yeah. have your beginner, adva- uh, intermediate, and advanced, like green slopes, blue slopes, black slopes. And this physicist said, you should do that with your debunkings on skeptical science. <laughs> and I, I was like, well, do you, do you realize how much work that would be? Uh, you do want help? And he was like, no, 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 no. I'm <laughs> yeah. suggesting it. You can run with it. A suggestion, yeah. not volunteering. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, for years, I've been trying to get people to help and hadn't. I'd been unsuccessful. Uh, but this idea was just so compelling that eventually I just posted a blog post on skeptical science saying, here is this very cool idea by Gavin Schmidt. Who wants to help? Like, basically, my rebuttals are written at an intermediate level. A little bit too nerdy for the average non-scientist. Does anyone think they could do a better job at writing plain language, more basic versions? And immediately overnight, got a flood of people volunteering to help. I mean, a lot of people thought, "Yeah, I can do a better job than you." In, in, in <laughs> and that created the skeptical science community, um, like an author community, all working together to write content. And importantly, review each other's content to yeah. to make it as accurate and and well communicated as possible. Yeah, it is it is a really really fantastic resource, and it's um, and uh, you you know the, as someone who is active on social media and stuff like that sometimes you feel like you're shouting at a brick wall but the reason people say to me kit why do you engage with the trolls what's the point i'm like well one i'm an educator you know it's it's a habit i can't break and the second thing is is that i'm not actually replying to that troll what i'm actually doing is i'm providing a link a resource to someone who is genuinely willing to learn who is on the fence who is not sure who knows climate change is happening but can't quite understand what's going on so me posting a rebuttal, a debunking, or whatever to that troll is not actually for that troll. Because I know I'm never going to convince those kinds of people. It's for those people who are got, you know, who are not close-minded. So and what what I really do take a lot of stock on actually, and I'm not quite sure, you know, how active you are on on, on social media, John, but um I pay probably more attention to the views than I do to the likes or the retweets. Well, the retweets are important, but to the to the views especially. If I see, usually what happens, you know, you get 200 something views and only like three likes, but 200 and some people have at least seen that tweet. So it's got to have some influence somehow. So the fact that you've worked on that and you've done that and you've put all that time and effort in and got all those volunteers, I just want to say thank you so, so much because it is such an amazing resource and it, it helps so much to say, look, I'm tired of giving these arguments over and over again. I'm being repetitive. It's like a broken record, but you know what? Look at this page on Skeptical Science, which addresses exactly your claim. So it's such a wonderful resource. And everybody, every teacher, every person should have it bookmarked, ready to go. Cool. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. And of course, born from that is you thought you're going to bring some of your art into it. So before we go on to um, your cranky uncle, <laughs> um, I want you to talk to us a little bit about um your artwork and and being a cartoonist because then we can get the sense of yeah behind all these these geeky geographers these scientists and whatnot there's the people who bring in their hobbies and passions as well and their humans peons behind it too so go on t- tell us a bit about what what were you, were you like one of these kids who just used to love drawing and then you were like formulating your own characters how did you start to become a cartoonist what how did that happen so I did a physics degree initially at the University of Queensland. 
And during my physics lectures, I would spend a lot of time drawing cartoons. <laughs> I passed, so I was still, <laughs> enough of the information got in that I got my degree. Nice. But af- after honors year, I was so burnt out by academia that I decided to s- do cartooning instead as a career and spent the next decade or so um, drawing for a living. I love doing it. Comic strips, um, publishing them in newspapers. Um, but while I was doing drawing for a living, then I started, uh, that's when I started getting into skeptical science and the climate change misinformation issue. So it's kind of a funny flip. Like when I was doing science, I did cartoons as a hobby. When I was doing <laughs> cartoons as a job, then I started doing science as a hobby. Ah. Um, and then, um, then I got pulled into back into academia, re- doing a PhD into psychology of misinformation and how best to counter it. And one of my research studies was with some philosophers, critical thinking philosophers, who introduced to me the idea of parallel argumentation, which is you can explain how misinformation is misleading by taking the logical flaws and transplanting it into a parallel situation uh, using logic analogies. And I realized cartoons are the perfect delivery mechanism for that. So I started, I dug up my old cartooning equipment and started drawing cartoons of... um, the logical fallacies that I was seeing in climate misinformation, but transplanting those into absurd situations. Wow, that is so cool. I mean, so what, what a what a roundabout way to come into it. But have, do you feel now you found your sweet spot then? Like because you're such a passionate communicator and with, with, with science, and you're obviously learning about how the human brain works with those biases, and you're cartoonist. I mean, are you 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 must you sound like you're in your sweet spot now. Um, it's a hard question to answer because mm. I because because each step then opens up other opportunities. Like I started by doing these cartoon debunkings, and then that led to doing a cranky uncle book. But then the cranky uncle book led me to meeting some game developers and doing a cranky uncle game, which added gamification to it. Uh, and now we're having done a cranky uncle game we're now looking at doing audio versions of the game to so that people who are illiterate Ooh. can can also benefit from the content and um just the, each each step seems to open up other opportunities so um i guess you would call it a sweet spot in the sense that it's i, I do really appreciate taking different aspects of what i've done in my past history and then synthesizing them, pulling them all together in a very unique way. Yeah. So let's move on and talk about Cranky Uncle now. So I've, I've just loaded up my app. So there's mm-hmm. my Cranky Uncle there. Um, what level? What? What's your mood currently? Oh, it, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to log in at the moment. It's not letting me log in to get into my thing, maybe because of uh, I don't know what's going on there. But I'm, it's back down to zero at the moment until I log in. Oh, okay. But um, <laughs> um, yeah. So folks, first of all. Pause if 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 you're not driving, if you're at home or and you're listening to this podcast, right? Pause now. Go and search for Cranky Uncle uh, on your on the app finder, whether it's Apple or Google or whatever. There is a browser version as well, which is fantastic. 
so that's great so you can also play it online um and if you are driving or it's unsafe to do so please obviously first thing you do when you arrive at your destination um it asks you to set up an account now yes it's it's for gamification you know you're saving your scores and playing on other devices stuff like that but it helps with um it also helps with a bit of research is that right so is it anonymous data get sent to to help because of the responses that people give yeah well firstly i don't think that you need to set up an account anymore on the latest version. Oh, okay, right, yep. We've we've streamlined it so you just can go straight into playing it if you want. Awesome. But what the game does do when you first start playing is it says, um, we're collecting research data. You Do you want to participate in research? Which is completely voluntary. If you agree, then it just asks you a few questions showing you examples of misinformation and you have to identify what is the misleading technique. If you then get all the way to the end of the game, it repeats that research survey. So it's just a very simple research design to measure, does the game improve people's ability to detect misinformation? Right. That's absolutely fantastic. So what we're going to do, we're just going to do one round and then I'm going to do a slightly, I'm going to do a a game with you kind of, but I'm going to mesh together something I do for this podcast plus uh, Cranky Uncle Sewers here we go. So right, so folks, so the first thing that, um, you have to challenge your cranky uncle about when you first start the game the first level is all about fake experts right and so it gives you a little bit of a description about what a fake expert is you've got some fantastic grumpy you know uncle kind of like poses going i love i love how you have him posing like with his arms crossed stories and i love the one with the tin foil hat that's brilliant as well um right so here we go folks here's three options think about it right so which of these an example of a fake expert professor smith who holds a phd in computer science says that climate change is not settled science astrophysicist professor professor jones explains how we detected a massive black hole in the center of our milky way galaxy medical researcher dr clark published a scientific report on the benefits of vaccination right so who is the fake expert because you'll hear people say oh this person's a scientist this person's a researcher this person is this this person's a doctor or whatever they must know what they're talking about but as me and john have demonstrated earlier in this chat just because we know a little bit about climate doesn't necessarily know we know how wine is grown yep so we are fake experts people are realizing what i do here um sometimes my adhd is a benefit john um I, i can make links to waffle i said before um and of course, the answer is, folks, is the computer scientist saying that climate change is not so, you know, the the most convincing computer, computer science will say, well, yeah, I'm a computer. I know how I know how modeling works, projection works. You know, I know how a computer algorithm works. Yeah. And they're going to sound convincing as, as, a, as an expert, but because they don't know and haven't studied the mechanics of climate and atmospheric physics and dynamics and stuff like that and how you apply that within a climate model. They are not an expert. Okay. So that's a fantastic example. That language, John, is brilliant because I would, if I was still teaching high school, I would certainly be using that with the youngest kids minimum. You like the 11, 12 year olds, year sevens and whatnot, because the language on that is very, very good. So, yes, you talk to us about accessibility. So you you got you hoping to have an audio version? Are you going to voice it? Are you going to be the cranky uncle? Oh no! Actually, the, we've already got some we've got some voice samples just over the last week. Cool. Definitely not voicing it because the game, 
the game is actually being put together by a, um, an organization in Ghana, in Western Africa. Oh, right. Cool. And so they obviously got Ghana um, actors to do all the voice work. Nice. Uh, and and in six different dialects, English and, and five local dialects. So um, That's amazing. So, and But they sent us samples and they're just wonderful, especially the uncle. The uncle was just so expressive and hilarious. <laughs> There's something about folks in that part of the world. I mean, I've got, I've got friends a lot further south in, in, in Malawi and there's something about how they express their enthusiasm, which is infectious. I think you're onto a winner there, John. And, and I tell you what, a lot of people are really going to um, enjoy what you said about having it done in local dialects, because of course that is so important to have, have that done, to have it done in, in those, in those local and native languages, because they always get forgotten. And of course, as, as we know, when we look at the IPCC reports, one of the major criticisms of the IPCC report is that it's, it's always in English. I mean, you do have sometimes people who locally translate it, but it's only ever in the major languages. And so it's not accessible for many people. I agree a hundred percent that, yeah, we want to make the game as accessible to as many different people as possible. Uh, and, and there's two versions of the game. There's the original Cranky game. That's what you're playing right now. And then mm-hmm. there's an upcoming new vaccine version of the game. That yeah. With UNICEF. That's the one that's being, um, it was co-designed in Africa and developed in, uh, and being translated into those different uh, Ghana local dialects. But even the classic version of the game has been translated into to French, German, um, Spanish, Portuguese. I think that, Macedonian is coming up soon. Wow! So, so yeah, cool. Um, I don't know how many people speak Macedonian, but um, but the, they'll have access to that game shortly. But it is a huge. There's a lot of content in that game, and therefore the translation job is is big. But we the volunteers who do it uh, just do it because they're passionate about about this issue, and so we really appreciate all the volunteers who help make the translations possible. Well, that's amazing. So that's, that's, that's brilliant, folks. So it's a, a, a true citizen science kind of thing, contribute a sustainable thing, because without that social aspect of our push towards environmental sustainability, then it's not going to it's not going to be effective. So that's amazing, John. Hi folks, a chance for you to recharge your brew, but also a polite prod to remind you that it's so easy to support this podcast. Simply liking, sharing, rating and reviewing means that it will get on more people's radar. Also, there are a few links down in the description which may be of mutual benefit. Please do check them out. Right, so here's the game, right? I've got... um, one of my favorite things I like to use in my training is something called 20 cognitive biases that screw up your decisions. It's a business insider graphic. Um, and the reason why I love it is because they set out the, the 20 biases like a card shape. So I, I, what I did in the past was I printed them out, cut them out, and I used to use them to help uh, people think about their biases. So uh, what I'm going to do is that I've got a random number generator, 1 to mm-hmm. 20, because there's 20 biases. Uh, and I'm going to play a different version of, of Jog On. So what I usually do with Jog On is I generate fi- five random topics and you can talk about three of them and pass on two of them. All right. So this time I'm going to roll this random number generator five times. It will give me a bias and you can either choose to talk about it and you can frame it in terms of climate change if you want or anyway, whatnot, or you can pass. 
So if you want to talk about it, you say jog on kit. If you want to pass it, you say take a hike. So you ready? Yeah. So I'm going to roll this random number generator, everybody. So it's coming up with 17. So 17, John, is selective perception. So this is allowing our expectations to influence how we perceive the world. In an, an experiment involved a football game between students from two universities showed that one team saw the opposing team commit more infractions. So would you like to jog on about that one or take a hike and move I'll, on something else? I'll jog on about that one. Go for um, it. Selective there's, perception. There's another study which I think is um, has the same bias, which was uh, it was a video where there was all these students with, in white shirts, white clothes, just throwing a ball between yes! themselves. And pa- participants were instructed, count how many times they catch the ball. And there's like two or three balls. So you really have to concentrate on watching these balls, like two or three balls moving around at the same time and counting how many times they're thrown. And uh, while this is happening, a person in a gorilla suit just walks into the middle of the crowd and then walks out. And the and afterwards, the researcher asked, "Did you see the gorilla?" And and I don't think anyone or, or very few people um, saw the gorilla because they were so concentrating on the um, yeah on the balls. Uh, and so it just tells us that people, our capacity to miss things, even in our direct line of sight, is incredibly powerful if we're really concentrating our attention somewhere. Yeah. And and I, I wrote an article uh, and I. Even I, I wrote it a number of years ago. So if I need to find it, I just Google <laughs> "gorilla blowfish climate change," and, and it'll come up. And, and the article is about um, how you can misinformation can take advantage of this selective attention by distracting people onto um, just specific things in order to miss the, the bigger picture. So, for, and, and the example I use is well from our own experience. We published a study that found uh, 97% consensus on climate change and and we replicated it. We found the same result as lots of other studies. It was a very robust result. But but our critics hyper-focused on very narrow little parts of the study saying, well, what about this little bit here? And the thing was all of that, like hyper-focusing on all these tiny little methodological nitpicks, um, was distracted the fact from the fact that our study was consistent with other studies. Uh, everyone were using different methods and coming to the same results, which is how science works. When science independently comes to the same conclusions, that's when you can be confident. But it was all about distracting people from this larger picture by trying to hyper-focus their attention on the um, the narrow little nitpicks. Uh, well, that was, what a, that was a longer answer than you probably oh, expected. Oh, fantastic! And that is that's perfect, John, because I I've uh, I found the uh, the article and I'm dropping that link in the show notes for people to read. So yeah, so I found it. So it's what do gorilla suits and blowfish fallacies have to do with climate change? Um, <laughs> excellent! What a great start, right? Um, and I do I I don't, I don't use that video anymore because too many people know about it now. So <laughs> it's uh, it's done it's done the rounds now. Right, so random number is generated again, and we're coming up to 14. So 14th, oh, this is an interesting one. So you can skip it or you can talk about it. It's the pro-innovation bias. When a proponent of innovation tends to overvalue its usefulness and undervalue its limitations. Sounds familiar, Silicon Valley? So you can jog on on that or you can take a hike. Pro-innovation bias. Uh, Okay, this, I'm probably, 
it, it remi- I'll, I'll jog on with this one. Okay. And I don't know whether I'm missing the point, but that description you just gave reminds me of a study, um, and it's, this is a different bias again, but it sort of manifested in the same way. Um, people were shown uh, an article about a nuclear power accident. And, okay. And and people responded to the article in two different ways, um, depending on their background. If they were supportive of nuclear power, they were they were like, "Well, they they yeah, there was an accident, but see how they recovered from it, and that shows that the, uh, you know, the that we can trust nuclear power." Whereas the people who began with the background of um, of uh, of being against it were like, "Yeah, this shows that it's not safe." So, so there was this. Um, I guess the pro innovation bias. It's not really. I think I'm missing the point. But was just under underplaying the limitations or dangers of nuclear power and and um, focusing instead on the, you know the fact that it, that they managed to recover from the the crisis. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I probably should have passed on that because it, no, that's a well, completely different bias. <laughs> but you've you've given a, a, a fantastic example, um, nevertheless. And so when I think of uh, uh, pro innovation bias, I'm thinking I, I just have two words: Elon Musk <laughs> <laughs> thinks uh, you know unproven, tested technologies are the answer to everything. Um, but he's also um, he's also a bit of a scaremonger about AI as well. So oh, we God. Need to shut down all AI. So, so yeah. he's a, kind of an anti-innovation when it comes to... Weird, yeah. So weird. Quite selective in his in which technologies he's... The ones that he's doing that he will profit from, he's all about. So that's um, vested interest. What would that be as well? <laughs> vested... Um, oh, what else? What's, what's the other word for it? Well, sort of like confirmation only going with the stuff that he goes with, he agrees with. Right. What's that saying? You can't convince someone of something if their paycheck depends on yes, it? Yes, that's it. I think Al Gore popularized that in The Inconvenient Truth back in the day, in the early two, mid-2000s. Um, right, number three is the bandwagon effect. So I probably don't need to describe this one, but you may have heard of it, folks, uh, as groupthink or sheepball. So the bandwagon effect, are you going to jog on or...? take a hike on that one um all right I'll, I'll jog on and then i've used up my quota but um, you have yeah because <laughs> i i've been accused of this one um okay because a lot of my early work um was about and this was really the main focus of my phd research was about scientific consensus so it was about um establishing that there was overwhelming agreement amongst climate scientists that human humans were causing global warming, and one of the criticisms of of us communicating the scientific consensus was the argument that science isn't done by consensus; science is based on evidence. Um, and so, so we were basically promoting a bandwagon effect, like we, were, you know, it was it was a consensus is only there because of groupthink. Or, or scientists, scientists are just all agreeing with each other because that's how they get their paychecks. Or you know, it's, it's that that yeah. previous bias we just talked about. Yeah, folks. So, I mean, you can't see it because it's a podcast, but I'm face palming. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh yeah, I've I've I get accused of that all the time. You know, I get accused. Oh, you're just another. You know, you're just following the money. I was like, folks, if I made money from this, you know, I wouldn't need to work, but I don't. I do it for the passion. Right. So the two that you've uh, skipped by default then is uh, number 16 and 7, which would have been salience, which is where you only tend to focus on things that are most recognizable to you. And number 7, confirmation bias, which is probably the most talked about um, one where you only really take in information which backs up your own perceptions, uh, preconceptions, and ideals. Fantastic. So do check that out, folks. So Cranky Uncle, brilliant, brilliant. You, you know, it's it's such a simple tool do use it in your teaching, have a play of it yourself, share it with other people. Um, you've got this vaccine one coming out soon as well, so keep an eye out for that. And um, yeah, and then uh, I'll put the all the links to everything in the description. Right, that's, that was brilliant, John. But uh, we're going to do two more things now to finish off. The first thing is you're going to spill the beans, and I'm really looking forward to talking about this because your creative um, talents don't just lie in drawing. Apparently, they, they lie in writing as well, because you say here, John, that you are currently in the process of writing some cli-fi. So you've got, uh, you're, you're obsessed with the fantasy genre, and, you know, there's definitely a geography angle in fantasy, and I've got, I've shown to many guests my uh, Atlas of uh, Middle-earth. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm in the process of writing a cli-fi fantasy, which involves uh, working with a Bristol-based climate scientist to build a climate model of my fictional fantasy world i wonder if i know this bristol person i know a few folks in bristol but anyway that sounds amazing oh right okay what made you think i'm gonna i'm gonna dabble in a bit of writing i'm gonna do some cli-fi because this is really interesting it started um after watching don't look up oh what a great movie yeah i mean i loved it in fact i felt like it was it was kind of describing my life for the last 10, 15 years. And, um, but, but then being a climate communication academic, I started nitpicking the, the um, analogy, <laughs> like the asteroid equals climate change analogy and thinking, well, there are certain ways that the analogy doesn't line up. Uh, and I thought, is it possible to do a cli-fi story like that with a better fitting analogy. Mm. Uh, and at the same time, um, uh, I started rereading the Wheel of Time books by Robert Jordan. Okay. Um, because, because the Amazon was about to do the Wheel of Time series and I needed to, I, I remembered how complicated the story was. So I needed to do some background reading for so the very nerdy kind of reason to, <laughs> to, to, to do homework before watching a, a streaming show. And and that just kind of reignited my love of fantasy, having grown up reading Lord of the Rings and Raymond Feist and David Eddings and, and, and all those fantasy books. And, and so I, I thought maybe you could do a, a cli-fi in a fantasy setting where mm. you – because the, the problem with um, Don't Look Up was an asteroid is, is meant to be the metaphor for climate change, but an asteroid – you know, destroys the world on Tuesday at 3 p.m., whereas climate yes. change happens over decades. Uh, and so there's there's that problem. You can kind of, but there's no way to get around that because it's sci-fi, it's, it's, you know, you can't change the laws of physics. You can in a fantasy world. You can use magic and basically make up the rules and then shape the metaphor to fit the, um, 
to fit climate change. So, so I started writing a story, um, designing a fantasy world and a magic system that that could then be a a metaphor for climate change. The problem was once I started writing the story, I realized that um, I, I or I understood why the metaphor um, often falls apart because the story t- trumps the metaphor. Mm. Eventually, you have to make compromises so that the story is engaging and powerful and 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 makes sense. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm just I'm still working through that process now. Uh, but but the other thing I realized was some of my favorite fantasy stories. There's there's the author again. This is that theme of author bringing what they you know bringing their thing. They brought their thing to it to make it so powerful. Tolkien was a linguist and mm, a scholar yep. he brought all of that that scholarship to write creating all the languages for yeah. middle earth and then building the histories for where the languages came from yeah and some George of all intents and purposes had eco anxiety as well right yeah i mean there's a lot of ecological themes in in his stories as well like i've read articles on is is lord of the rings cli-fi can we retroactively you know, and I don't know. That's kind of a, an academic question, but certainly Tolkien, as a person, yeah, was was dismayed by the way that like industrialization was was destroying you know the landscapes that he loved. Um, and then George R. R. Martin and, and Tolkien. What I really, I mean, I love both those worlds because they're so rich and, and and detailed, and that richness comes from their background. And so I thought, well, if I want to write a cli-fi fantasy, it just made sense that you, um, ha- having uh, spoken at length to climate scientists from Bristol, Dan Lunt specifically, who created a, a climate model okay. of Middle Earth, uh, and then some of his colleagues at Bristol then went on and just nerded it up creating climate models of Arrakis from June um, and, and other fantasy worlds, I forget what the other ones were and so i approached him and said would you be interested if i had a fictional fantasy world would you be interested in in building a climate model um working out how the climate would work in all the different parts of the world and then using those details to to shape the story and so so it's been a very long process like that i basically had to create a map of an entire globe um and and not just all the wow. land features like the elevation at every point of the world, but they said this is going to be a atmosphere ocean land ocean model. So I had to create the the depths of all the oceans. I had to research how what do continental shelves and steps look like, and how and basically wow. create the uh, elevation from the tip of every mountain all the way to the bottom of every ocean. What that is incredible literal will will, (laughs) well building and i mean i i can tell now why you everyone always struggles with the question i put on the form about can you say something as non-geographical as possible and you were just like no i can't i'm doing sci-fi because like you have to build the geography like in order to make that work and yeah before you can well that makes perfect sense because now i'm thinking when you got climate models what are the components to it so you've got the atmospheric component the oceanic component you've got the land masses you've got currents and and then before you know it you've got all these different elements that you cannot be missing at all if you're going to be projecting climate and so that makes 
Yeah, perfect. But wow, that is so exciting. I tell you what, um, John, not only am I going to be looking forward to this book, but whenever you get around to finishing it, sounds like it's going to be a a labor of love. Um, but wow, or, you know, you'd, you'd be able to get something out of the behind the scenes of a book of that book as well, I think. Yeah, well, what I loved about Dan Lunt's um, modeling of Middle Earth was he used that obviously a very nerdy labor of love, but he used it as a way to do some really cool climate communication because because his yeah. day job is building models of other planets like um you, you know uh, you know in the solar system or wherever and uh and so it was it was organic and the, the idea there is that climate models are just based on um, fundamental physics laws of physics uh, and and therefore yep. it can be applied to jupiter or to mars but you could also apply those same principles to Middle Earth. So he was he used this um, this fun labor of love as a way to communicate the how climate models work and and just how we can use these use physics and use computers to build our understanding of the world. Oh, you you two are are men after my own heart, I tell you, because uh, one thing that I I did when I used to teach about um, hazards. Um, was for the lesson about responding to hazards I brought in, and uh, I'm not sure how popular it was in in Australia, but I brought in um, International Rescue, the, Th- the Thunderbirds, um, Jerry Anderson's puppet uh, show. And I so I did a whole lesson about responding to an earthquake, and I had to get the information from Thunderbird 5, all the information, uh, to send Thunderbird 1 out to do the initial survey and what they need, and then they had to decide what equipment to put in a Thunderbird 2, and I had all my models in and everything like that. Yeah, this is speaking right to my heart, John. Um, I'm so so excited for you and how it comes out, and uh, and yeah, and uh, please please do um, yeah keep us posted on on your progress because I think a lot of people listening are going to be like, I'm looking out for that. <laughs> well, I'm going to well, look out for that. So thanks for sharing that. Because um, in case go I do for forget to let you know when there's developments, <laughs> if you go to johnfocook.com, you can. You can yep. sign up to get notifications if if, if there's Excellent. ever an update on on this story. Uh, I've never <laughs> sent an update yet because it's still percolating away. But um, sometime months or years into the future, um, whoever has signed up yeah. to get a notification will be the first to learn when something <laughs> happens. Oh, I love it! I love it. It'd be like, so how are you getting on with that that um, that then, John? You were like. Well, I've, I've I've just worked woken out the tectonic processes <laughs> of my planet. I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's awesome, right, John? Um, I would also point out to people, and for for your reference as well, is that I I did a brilliant podcast episode with um, a good friend of mine, Andy Plastes, and the Great Derelict podcast called um, um, Cli-Fi in Science Fiction. So, cli- climate fiction in science fiction, um, and basically. Um, Folks, if you just, uh, I'll put the link in the description as well, but if you just search for Great Derelict Cli-Fi, um, you'll listen to, to me, um, Dave Wynn and Andy talk about all these different things, like how climate change has popped its head up in climate fiction. Um, we totally geek out. We talk about work such as the Kraken Wakes. We talk about Mad Max Fury Road, Wally, uh, one of my favorite books, which is the, um, the Wind Up Girl, um, uh, one and we 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 talk about the ridiculousness of the day after tomorrow, Soylent Green, 
uh all that interstellar so yeah um hopefully i haven't given you too much to kind of like procrastinate on there john and everyone else but but do check that out <laughs> um right let's finish off then john so the last thing to do then is we are all geographers which is where we link all you guests together so uh last episode we spoke to um david priest um ex-geography teacher who who teaches uh and supports geography um education for teach first here in the uk and um so he did um 30 seconds talking about a word that was given to him and john you've got 30 seconds to talk about a word and i try to challenge the guests to link it to something geographical so you could link it to climate change or some of that or you could just talk about it randomly for 30 seconds it's completely up to you i've i've lowered the bar of challenge because some people are like uh <laughs> so you ready for this john okay. here's your word for 30 seconds it's the word synoptic synoptic so David has given you the word synoptic. Now you can, there is a lot, I know there's a few interpretations of the word, so you can take it however you so wish for 30 seconds, John, and then um, we'll get the word from you for next guest. So whenever okay. you're ready. This is a hard one. So synoptic, I, I'll interpret that as, as a synopsis, a summary. Uh, and uh, one of the first comments I got from uh, Skeptical Science was someone saying, these long rebuttals that you've written, these are great, but can you just put a little synopsis at the top, a little short summary, like a uh -huh. paragraph? And I was like, no, I've spent all the effort writing those articles. You can damn well read them. <laughs> uh, and then eventually I thought, all right, I'll do it. Um, this is all before the basic intermediate advanced. Uh, but sure. then after I did that, I went to all that trouble. Then he replied... Well, those are great, but could you also do a one-line summary? <laughs> uh, and then, and then someone else emailed me and said, "Oh, I, and I did do the one-sentence things." And then someone said, "I love those one-sentence summaries." Um, I'm working on a Twitter no. bot. Can you get them all down under 140 characters? Uh, this is this is so 1984 we're eventually going to end up in single words <laughs> to try and describe whole sentences aren't we oh, oh that's excellent john thank you so much so um what word would you like to give to uh my, the following guests oh, coming on after you so for them to chat about for 30 oh, seconds it can be as random as you like it can be based on what we've talked about it can be something maybe a word that might appear it, in your novel because you can't give any spoilers with a single word it could be a short, a very, very short phrase of two or three words. Uh, is is the word cranky? Um, oh yes, let's do cranky. That's my that's my word. Let's do cranky. Because like, if people are listening to the next episode without listening to this one, they're like, "Why on earth did John give that one?" And I'm just gonna have to say, "You're just gonna have to <laughs> listen, aren't you?" And find out. <laughs> oh, John, um, I've had such a delight this morning, and thank you for giving up your evening um abs absolutely it's been wonderful to talk to you and, and get to know you a little bit um so folks um wishing to connect with you where can they where can they find you out there on the interwebs and social media and your website and stuff just give us a bit of a plug crankyuncle.com is where you can find uh, all my critical thinking work and the game the cartoons and skepticalscience.com is where you can find all the climate debunkings awesome Thank you very much. And uh, I know you gave a shout out to Dan Lunt over there in Bristol on the other side of the country to me. Is there anyone else you want to say a quick hi to? Well, I've got lots of friends in the UK. I might might even be visiting 
Exeter in, in about two months. Oh, um, going to the Met Office. No, it's the University of Exeter. I've got some colleagues there. No? They're actually they're oh. machine learning researchers. We're working on detecting climate misinformation automatically. Um, so, oh, so I'm going to give a shout awesome. out to Travis Cohen at Exeter. And I hope to see you in a few months, Travis. John's coming for you folks down there in Exeter. Yeah, um, well, a lovely part of the UK. John, um, thanks again so much for giving up your time. Um, it's been deeply appreciated. And just once again, thank you for all the the blood, sweat, tears and love that you've given to the work that you've done. Um, and uh, I've just realised, folks, that um, I tell you what, John can answer this after I press stop record, but I forgot the obvious question is that, John, are you going to illustrate your own novel? But John can tell me afterwards. You lot can just you lot can just guess and hope what he might have said thanks a lot John for joining me thanks a lot thank you so much for listening we hope you had fun if you haven't already done so please subscribe so more stories and experiences can drop into your favourite podcast app if you fancy being a guest or have any feedback follow us on twitter at coffeejogpod and send us a DM or you could email coffeeandjog at geogramblings.com. Until next time, keep geogging.